0: Does this thing work? This is the Peak Boredom Podcast. So, three, two, one. <laughs> no. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have two very special guests with us today. We have James and Kelly.
1: Hello.
0: So I guess for the people who don't know you guys, can you guys introduce
1: yourself? Uh, sure. So I'm Kelly Chow. Um, I am a pediatrician in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Um, and work in the community here, and I am five years out of my training. Um, And I did all my training here in Vancouver. So I'm at a full school residency and I'm here. Uh, I did part of an undergrad in pharmacy, but I decided to go a different route um, halfway through. So I rerouted myself into medicine. That's me.
2: Yeah, Um, my name is James. I'm a pharmacist here in Vancouver, BC. Uh, but my, I, I worked in the community for about a decade. Uh, and then I now currently work with the, the regulatory body. So with the College of Pharmacists and uh, My role primarily is compliance, So making sure pharmacies are doing what they're supposed to.
0: Oh, interesting. Wow. Wait, what do you guys mean by working in the community?
2: Community, so with pharmacies, typically you have community pharmacies. So those would be the pharmacies where uh, if you had a prescription for antibiotics, you go to the local drugstore and pick up your prescription, uh, as opposed to some like pharmacies which uh, operate within a hospital, for example, uh, or who service like residential care long care facilities.
1: Uh, for me, it means something similar. Um, so I previously actually worked in the hospital as well as in the community. In the community, for us, means that I see like outpatient, so things that are less urgent, so things that you would go to an office to see. Um so I see like Gabriels like autism, ADHD, developmental delay, asthma, edema, like pretty much anything that can wait a few days typically. I can see my office. Um so that's gonna be my community. But I previously worked in the hospital, so I did do um some like nursery maternity care. So I attended delivery um sure the newborn babies were well. Um and then as well there's another component of pediatrics in which when patients get admitted to the hospital. Um, they're taken care of by pediatricians as well, um, and so that is another aspect of um, like inpatient hospital pediatric care.
0: Yeah, I guess that leads on to one of the first questions that we have. How would you explain a pharmacy to someone who doesn't know what it is or like where it is in the healthcare system?
2: Yeah, so it's uh, it's actually that's a really good question. So basically, with pharmacies, um, one of the, the biggest questions that I actually get asked all the time is what, what exactly do pharmacists do? So what are they doing when I hand them that prescription? Uh, what are they doing behind the counter? Nobody really knows, and that's, uh, and that's fair. But um, basically, you know, the role of the pharmacist uh, and the pharmacy is to make sure that patients are getting the right drug uh, for them and that it's safe and effective for their use. So behind the scenes, pharmacists are making sure that the drug that they're giving you is the correct medication, it's safe for you. Uh, so whether you are a baby, whether you're you know, like a 90-year-old man, or whether you're a pregnant lady, uh, so they're making sure that that drug for you specifically is safe, that it's the correct medication for your condition, uh, and also that it uh, works well with everything else that you're taking. And then they provide you information so that when you go home, you understand you know what you're getting yourself into and they're also there if you have questions after the fact Uh, if you forgot oh i forgot uh, something that uh, my pharmacist said they're always there uh, for you so then they can sort of remind you about side effects or if you have any concerns about that so that's what a pharmacy
0: great and i guess another question i have is well this is quite unique do why do doctors decide to work in a clinic as opposed to working in a hospital
1: so it's actually a personal choice. Um, I can only speak for pediatricians because um, every specialist is a little bit different. So obviously if you're a surgeon, you need to work in a hospital because need you know OR, are. Um, and so it really depends on your specialty. But for pediatrics, we're actually trained to do um, in-hospital work of a variety of types as well as community work. So at the end of the day, when you're done your training, what do you want to do? Well, it's really up to you. So for me, Initially, I wanted to do a lot with newborns because I enjoy newborn care and kind of ensuring um, the health of baby. Um, And then I like kind of the ability to sit in an office and really think through what's going on with my patients and have the time to ensure I'm being thorough. So I like those two things. So that's why initially I did some newborn care in the hospital as well as community work, Um, working in an office Um, that changed as our family changed. So obviously, Working and waking up at three in the morning to go to deliveries becomes a lot more difficult when you have children, um, and so maintaining family balance was more was something we had to adjust to when we had our son. So with that, I decided to just move into community work for now, and as he gets older, we may readjust. But it's really personal preference, I would say, in pediatrics as to what you want to do, which is great because we get to just do what we like and really move in that direction. Oh, great. So, why did you become a pediatrician? So, well, the easy answer, which I think everybody expects, is I like kids. Of course, <laughs> I like kids. Like, you can't go to pediatrics without liking kids. But I would say that's not generally the only reason people become pediatricians. You, uh, you have to, that's almost like mandatory. Um, I actually liked the medicine in pediatrics, it's very different than adult medicine. Um, What I see is not simply what happens in an adult, but in a smaller human. It's actually very, very different. So for me, initially, I really liked embryology and kind of the development of the fetus and learning how that happened. And then when things went wrong, well, what do we do? Um, So that was intriguing to me. And that was a part of medicine that you can't really get in other places. Um, And then there's a lot with regards to behavior and development um, that you don't see in adult medicine that I really enjoyed. Um, and the physiology kind of like how the body works is different in children and I like that aspect of medicine so for me it was really the medicine and pediatrics that drew me to it and then, obviously you like the kid and I think the other part I liked was we're kind of like detectives kids don't tell you what's wrong they tell you no. and then parents tell you their interpretation of what they see and then you have to also objectively see them and pick up what you can from that and then you're putting all these pieces together to figure out what's going on and I like the challenge of that. So that was kind of one of the additional things that I liked about
0: Well, that leads on to our next question. Um, when it comes to, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, how has the way that medicine is being practiced changed because of the pandemic? And that includes like, when you said you do pharmacy audits, how has that changed now that we have to be at home working? And how does maybe appointments change now that you have to do it from home?
2: So, so with the pandemic, of course, it was something unexpected. Nobody predicted it, uh, of course. Um, so there's, there's two different things that have changed. Uh, Number one is actually pharmacy practice and how that's, that's being handled. Uh, and number two is, is sort of, uh, how we do pharmacy audits. Uh, pharmacy practice as a whole has changed, you know, in the sense that, uh, you know, with social distancing, you can't really social distance in a pharmacy. Pharmacies are generally quite small. So, even if you have a pharmacy counter in between you and your patient and you have plexiglass, uh, that's really not that far away anyways. Um, So, and even if you were able to to distance from patients, the problem is you probably won't be able to distance uh, with your coworkers because, you know, pharmacies are generally like very, very small. Um, So oftentimes it's kind of left up to the discretion because pharmacies, they can't really close down because they're essential. You can't leave people without their medications. So it's kind of left up to the discretion and the judgment of the, the healthcare provider, uh, the pharmacist in this case. And you know they have to make sure that they have maybe the personal protective equipment that they need to keep themselves uh, safe, their staff safe, uh, and their patients safe. Uh, and then they, where possible, they'll set up social distancing measures, for example, and then maybe certain things such as immunizations, providing injections. Pharmacies may put that on hold if it's not urgent, uh, you know, unless they can do it safely. So then they'll kind of have to come you know, think outside the box and try to make every, make things work during this time. In terms of pharmacy audits, uh, we used to. So you know, we typically go into pharmacies for our pharmacy and pharmacy audits, but of course with the pandemic, what we didn't want was for us to be sort of an external person in a pharmacy at this time, potentially introducing. Uh, you know, like a virus into the, in their environment. So what we have done is we've stopped our audits for now and we're working on moving towards uh, sort of a more uh, virtual style of audit. Uh, so that's currently being developed uh, for us. So that, uh, that'll probably be rolled out shortly, I would say.
0: How do pharmacy audits normally work? Cause I think when I brought it up, Mars thought that it was a yeah. final audit.
2: Yeah. That's called- uh, so I'm it's,
0: basically the most lost one here.
2: Yeah, it's not a financial audit. Uh, so from the, I mean, they may still get audited financially. That's a separate thing. But uh, from the, the perspective of the regulatory body, uh, kind of as I mentioned before, we are there to make sure that they are doing their jobs correctly so that uh, you as the public and the patients are kept safe. So our primary objective is patient safety. Uh, when we do pharmacy audits, basically, I will go in to the pharmacy uh, and I'll inspect the entire premises. So this includes everything from how they, you know, like seeing uh, the condition of the premises, whether they have all the equipment that they're supposed to have, how are they documenting their prescriptions, how are they filing their prescriptions, do they have all the references that they need, uh, you know, are there narcotics stored appropriately, uh, you know, what do their, what do their, like, uh, uh, invoices look like uh, so. So those kind of things, you know, like uh, we'll we'll look at everything related to the actual premises. But on top of that, we will actually evaluate the people as well too. So pharmacists and pharmacy technicians here in BC are licensed. So of course they're expected to maintain a certain level. Um, uh, they they have to maintain like a, a certain level of knowledge and skills and ability to provide safe pharmacy care to, to the public. So, you know, we'll listen in and we'll sort of observe pharmacists doing their work, making sure that are you documenting appropriately? Are you identifying your patients appropriately? Are you providing counseling? Uh, What does that counseling look like? So then that way we know that they're sending you home with the correct information and that they're doing it appropriately. And the same thing goes with pharmacy technicians. Are they, uh, you know, how are they preparing your prescriptions? Are they documenting appropriately, identifying patients appropriately? So that's that's.
3: So this audience needs to be surprised, like, well we <laughs> I don't know.
2: It could be. I mean every every jurisdiction in Canada, so each problems will be a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, in sure. we, so to be routine audits, we don't surprise people. Okay. Uh, and that's because you know, surprising people doesn't doesn't change the outcome. I, yeah. At the end of the day, right? We what we want is we want everybody to sort of meet that standard that we're looking for. Uh, if they if pharmacies realize that we're coming in for an audit and they make changes and try to get to that standard, that ends up getting you to the right spot, anyways. So uh, we tell you when we're coming in, and then uh, of course, you know, even after we tell people that we're coming in, nobody's perfect, so we will still find room for improvement, um, but then that actually helps pharmacies do a better job in terms of uh, helping the patients uh, in, in their pharmacy practice.
0: What happens when something goes wrong, though? Do they, is it like when a food inspector comes to a restaurant and then not great? I was going to say
2: that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, for us, we, we look at it as a non-punitive type review. And what I mean by that is uh, it's not a pass or a fail. So, so we will identify certain action items that need to be completed. So, for example, if you're missing, you know, these requirements, you need to get these requirements fixed. So, uh, and if you don't get those requirements fixed, so generally, generally speaking, everybody just fixes it and it's fine, and then they're at that right level and we're okay. But uh, say if some, if for example, there's some reason where somebody cannot meet these uh, the, the the regulated criteria, uh, or they just choose not to. In that case, it can be escalated for discipline. So. Most people, you know, will just fix what needs to be fixed. But of course, it kind of, uh, you know, it can, if it needs to be, it can be escalated.
0: Okay, I guess we can move on to Kelly. Oh, yeah. Same question. Same question.
1: It has changed um, my practice a lot. Um, obviously, again, it depends on your specialty. Um, for me, as I work in the community, um, it has changed how I practice. So I previously did all of my offices. In the office, I saw patients in person, um, had full days, eight-hour days, and um, would see them obviously. Uh, but since on the onset of the pandemic, I've been doing as much as possible by telehealth to minimize obviously the risk to myself and my patient. Um, and so, it does pose a challenge. I would say in pediatrics, majority of what we do is from our history anyhow, so talking to the parents, talking to the child, and finding out what's going on. So that aspect isn't that different, but. There is a lot that I gather from just seeing the child, seeing how they interact with the parents in the waiting room, seeing how they play, and then obviously examining them. So um, it has been very different in that sense, and now I'm doing as much as possible by telehealth. Um, and then when I do bring patients into the office, because obviously sometimes I, do, like, I need to see things to figure out what's going on, um, it's also very different in that sense because I'm trying to make sure patients don't cross paths in the waiting room and we have to make sure everyone stays safe. So typically what we do now is we get our patients to wait in the car. Uh, We call them up when the previous patient has left so they don't cross paths, come into the office, Um, they have to stay six feet away from the secretary. When they check in, come in and um, I'm fully gowned up, like we have to wear a face shield or goggles, mask, gloves, and then clothes, either scrubs or clothes that you will wash immediately upon going home. Um, And so we're wearing all of that and then you're interacting with the patient I tend to scare the kids wearing these things when previously you want to be friendly and play with them and find out things. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. And even there's the technicalities of doing things, right? Like trying to put your stethoscope in your ears when your face mask is here, it's very difficult. Um, Checking the eyes of a baby is really hard when you have a mask on or or goggles and you're trying to put this thing up your eye and look at the baby. So there's a lot of technical issues that are very difficult. So a lot has changed Um, and we're kind of, we're making do to ensure the safety of everybody um it's there's many layers that have been added on
0: yeah i guess so it definitely changes the way you interact with patients isn't it
1: yeah um i mean it, i obviously i see patients from 0 to 18 so it there's a lot of aspects that are different i would say the biggest thing is i i get a lot from just observing my patients even in the waiting room with their parents how they are while i talk to their parents and profits or I'm talking to them directly so it's harder for me now to interpret a lot of things without that aspect um, and so i've had to adjust how i ask questions ask more questions try and be more detailed and things that i would have naturally gathered by just observing so that has been more challenging um, but i would say it's it's an adjustment that has to be made to ensure everybody is safe but I am definitely looking forward to when I can go back
0: to the way it was. <laughs> Do you get called during emergencies then? And also, what gets categorized as an emergency? Because I think my friend did a shift once in an emergency ward and a child came in with a marble up his nose and that somehow counts as an emergency. <laughs> what?
1: Why? So, that's actually very <laughs> common in pediatrics, things in orifices. Um, so, what's classified as an emergency is different based on the person. So here typically i don't see emergent things in my office but obviously things come in so i have had to send patients to the emergency room directly from my office or call an ambulance directly in multiple occasions um because they come and they don't realize how severe it is until i examine them and then i realize they need to go to the emergency room um so that happens a handful of times i would say not terribly often because i don't generally see urgent cases in my office um but typically so in in canada at least it's um, in the daytime, if you feel like something like from a parent's perspective, if you feel like your child needs to be seen urgently for whatever their concern might be, the emergency room is always open. It's open 24-7 and a parent can always take their kid there regardless of the concern they have. And like the hospital here, the children's hospital here will never turn any, anybody away. Um, and so I don't know if you necessarily classify everything as urgent or emergent, but parents' views are different. And as a parent, you're very anxious and you're worried about your child, so they'll bring them in. Um, and so, really, anything can be brought to the emergency room. Um, from a physician's perspective, what is determined as emergent is very different. Um, I would say, technically, generally, if there's any compromise of any system, or if the child's lethargic or not responsive or not breathing properly, obviously those are the things to go in. So, um, but really, anything can be considered emergent, and anything will be seen in the emergency room here. So it was not true a true definition, I would say. Well, another question that we
0: have was, and I guess both of you can pitch in, is how do you handle patients that may reject your professional opinion or just go against your entire like medical opinion?
3: And then they come back with
0: like, "Oh no,
3: still sick." <laughs> I, still
1: I get a fair share of that, and. Um, oh no. so oh no. I- biggest thing is, in pediatrics, parents come in always with the best intent for their child. They want the best for their kids. And they're always thinking, not always, most of the time, in the best interest of their child. And they may have differing opinions to what I have. Generally, if they're brought to me, there's a question. There's something they want answered. So I always give my opinion, give the safest option, give what I think is the best option for them. Um, and I would say in the majority of cases, if they disagree, we have a conversation. And if I explain myself and they explain their Usually we can meet in the middle and we can figure out what sort of plan that works for everybody. Um, and so I meet that challenge a lot, I would say. Um, and then obviously in extreme cases, if I feel like a parent's decision is compromising the health of their child, um, they're harming their child, they're neglecting their child, um, their child is in dire risk or dire harm, um, and then in in BC we have like Ministry of Children who can get involved. And intervene um, and ensure the safety of the child as well so on a few occasions I have had to go that route to ensure a child is safe that's very very rare though Um, and I would say the one of the perks of being a pediatrician is everyone typically is on the same side right we all want the best for the child we may differ in our opinions but usually we can reach some sort of mutual so I don't I would say I don't really have the issue of like people overtly doing the opposite of what I recommend terribly
2: often um, just because we have a common goal. And I think in the pharmacy world, it's very similar as well too. I mean, everybody, you know, we are all trying to work towards a positive outcome for the patient. So from on our end, typically, uh, you know, there, there's kind of two, two aspects where we may have sort of differences in opinion with patients. Uh, so one would be, safer, uh, sort of mild uh, conditions where there's an over-the-counter treatment that's uh, that can resolve whatever it is that you're experiencing. Uh, somebody may come in and they say, "I saw this. I saw you know this supplement on TV. That that's fantastic. that says it's fantastic for this." TV. But we may not agree, uh, and in that case, it's just a matter of sharing information and saying, "Hey, okay, you know, there's not much information about this, or or whatever the the you know just talking through the disagreement." Uh, And ultimately, you know, it's the patient's choice. So if they, you know, choose to, you know, you can't really force a patient to do anything. So that's number one. Uh, Patients always have the right to choose. Uh, We just kind of, you know, guide them along the path and provide them with the information so they can make an informed decision. Uh, And then so that's that's with you know, things where we may make the recommendation. Uh, And then we'll have also patients where... They are prescribed a medication by a doctor, for example, and then they'll come in and tell me, you know, hey, James, I I haven't been taking this medication because of something I saw online or because of some other reason. Uh, It makes me feel funny. Right. And, and, you know, of course, the best thing that they should be doing is taking their medication. But uh, in this situation, we basically listen to their concerns. And uh, here we have to sort of see maybe they are actually experiencing a side effect. And then, OK, we have to talk to the doctor about that. Uh, in some cases, patients just are really bad with taking their medications. In that case, you know, we try to uh, make some arrangements, for example, uh, where we you know, blister card their medications to help them with remembering to take their medications, for example, like a visual cue. Um, you know, But if people, if, if patients just don't flat out don't want to take their medications, uh, that is actually up to them. Like if, you know, if you have high blood pressure, you don't want to take your high blood pressure medication just because you absolutely can do that. Uh, of course, as a pharmacist, I will tell your doctor probably uh, just to let them know, hey, just so you know, give you a heads up that this is happening. This person's not taking their, their medication. So when you see them next, be prepared that you'll have to, you know, like uh, maybe take a different approach in terms of the way you treat their high blood pressure, for example.
0: Mm. So I guess because of the whole patient autonomy thing, right? That's the reason that you can't really force anyone to take medications. But what happens when the other way around happens? Because when America declared that hydroxychloroquine was suddenly the miracle cure for the pandemic, and I think I saw that a lot of people started bulk buying this medicine but it's taking away from people who have like lupus, who, who actually need hydroxychloroquine. And I know hydroxychloroquine is also used for malaria, I think, even though I think there's some resistance to it nowadays. Do pharmacies have the right to say, like, no, we're not going to prescribe this medication? Yes. Uh, so it's
2: actually chloroquine that's used for malaria, not, not as common anymore. But, uh, but anyways, um, with, the, with pharmacies, we noticed that that was a huge problem. Like, that was actually a really big problem where you know everybody saw uh, the news or tv and they all everybody tried to talk about hydroxychloroquine so then we had all of these prescriptions uh, coming into the pharmacy where uh, people would be asking for hydroxychloroquine where they didn't actually have a condition that needed it uh, they were just kind of having it on hand just in case uh, and we did see those shortages that you mentioned uh, patients that needed it couldn't get it so, what, what actually ended up happening was we had to work with, uh, so the, the pharmacy regulatory body, uh, had to work with, uh, had to issue guidance, essentially. And, and we worked with the College of Physicians. Uh, so basically they had to tell their, the doctors to, you know, to tell them, hey, you know, stop prescribing this medication that's not proven, uh, because it's taking away from the supply of everybody that needs it. And then from the pharmacy perspective, we sent out guidance also to tell pharmacies to tell them that hey, so don't you know like you can refuse. Like, well, if unless a person actually needs it, you should not fill it. Uh, so the answer is yes. Uh, pharmacies can absolutely refuse prescriptions, uh, and even not just with hydroxychloroquine, but any any situation where there's a prescription that's unsafe uh, or inappropriate. Um, you know, the pharmacy can always refuse to fill the prescription. So I've, I've done it myself before as well too, where if, based on my judgment, I don't think that it's actually safe for you to take, uh, you can actually refuse.
0: But then what happens if the medication turns out to be quite a common over-the-counter medication? Because I think they also mentioned that ibuprofen was can, exagger, can exaggerate some of the symptoms of COVID-19. So what that happens if it's just a common medicine that people normally have?
2: If it's if it's an over the counter medication, it's a bit trickier because of the fact that uh, it's you know prescription medications we keep behind the counter we control the supply, uh, whereas over the counter medications if somebody were to take a bottle of ibuprofen and and go you know pay for it at the cashier you wouldn't really know, uh, so it's harder to control over the counter medications. Now you know that being said. Uh, if somebody comes and asks us about, uh, oh, I grew open, uh, is there an issue with this in COVID, for example? Uh, in that case, then it would be us, again, like sharing our, our knowledge and information, the most up-to-date information with the patient. Uh, maybe in that, in some cases, it would be dissuading the patient say, hey, the, you probably shouldn't take this uh, because of whatever reason. Uh, and if there are sort of on a larger scale, if there are side effects uh, that are being discovered, uh, on a larger scale, generally speaking, you know, our, the, the federal health uh, body, uh, in this case Health Canada, uh, they're always monitoring uh, safety reports. So pharmacies, doctors will send in uh, adverse reaction reports, uh, and Health Canada always keeps an eye on that, and if they start seeing, uh, hey, we're noticing a pattern of reports about liver failure with this drug, uh, they may issue a warning, they may issue a recall, they may uh, you know, do a number of different things. But typically, anything where something is actually removed from shelves is, is done at the federal level.
0: And you guys are pretty busy as well, not only with your jobs, but also being parents. Do do you guys ever feel, like, burnt out? And what happens then?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I have burnt out many times. to attest to that. Um, throughout my training. So I did four years of an undergrad, four years of medical school, four years of residency, and then now I'm for five years. I think at multiple points, I have burned out for different reasons though. Um, I think there's two big aspects of burnout. Like n- number one is mental burnout. Um, so psychologically, are just exhausted. And I think that usually kicks in before anything else. Because um, right now, if you imagine I work eight hours a day, most days a week, listening to people. Um, and trying to figure out their issues and some of them quite serious um, and so I take on their worries, I take on their concerns and I'm constantly trying to figure out solutions and ways to make their lives better and make people healthier. Um, and So that does weigh on a person and it's just like 100% work all the time in the brain. So if you do that for too long without taking a break for your brain then you easily burn out mentally and psychologically and, and so it's very important to take breaks. Um, and then there's the physical exhaustion. So I would say certainly the worst is probably through residency because I was doing call, which can be 24 or 36 hour shifts every, at one point, I think every three days. Um, and so you're kind of like, you go to work, you're on for that many hours, 100% on, maybe getting a nap here or there. And then you come home, you zonk out, and then you go back to it again. Um, and so you're never really in like a time zone. You're just always jet lagged. You're always sleep-deprived. You're always tired. Um, and then once we become staff, like once I finished, then... You're still doing that, kind of at your own rate, somewhat controlled by yourself. Um, But then now you have the added stress of the fact that you're exhausted and everything falls on your shoulders. So a number of times I have woken up at three in the morning, gone to a newborn delivery, had to resuscitate, spent four, five, six hours with that baby, trying to take care of it, trying to keep it alive, trying to do everything. And then I come home after I've dealt with it, I'm exhausted physically, mentally, and then... Trying to rest, but at the same time, constantly thinking, did I do everything right? Um, is there something else I could have done? How is this baby going to develop? How is this baby going to turn out because of the decisions i made? So, all of those things contribute to burnout. Um, so, we're pretty good at making sure we have breaks. So, um, even though I'm self employed, we make sure we like schedule kind of vacation times to turn off our brains for a while. Um, it's a little harder now that we have a toddler. So, <laughs> um, we go to work, we come home and then we're parents. So, um, but we do make sure we have kind of time at the end of the day to turn our brains off to ensure that we get a rest. And how exactly do you turn your brains off? Because I think that's
0: a bit difficult for some people.
1: Um, it depends. Um, just doing completely, like for me, it's something completely non-medicine, non-parent related. Something that is just enjoyable for me. So, I like to bake. I sew. I do crafts. I read, watch TV, like things that like just are just mindless things that you can do just, just for the sense, like the heck of it to say that I enjoy it. Um, but I certainly don't do my like reading of medical journals at night when I'm trying to turn my brain off.
2: And that, that would also echo sort of, uh, you know, the same approach that Kelly's taking where, um, it's, it's important for people that, uh, so, so pharmacy, pharmacists, doctors, uh, you're very, very specialized professionals. Um, problem is if you, if you let, uh, your, your, your professional role take over your life, it will. Uh, so it's, it's actually important for actually all like, uh, professionals to really be able to separate, uh, separate themselves from, okay, this is, this is, you know, work life and home life. Um, because if you don't uh, then you know you could be looking at journals like all night you can be thinking about this or that and, and really it'll just consume you so having that that uh, uh, that time to sort of basically like relax and not think about uh, what's what's going on at work is really important.
1: And early on in our relationship we very much kind of decided that work didn't work Obviously, we come home, we vent, we discuss what's happened, but we don't really try. We try not to bring home the emotions of work um, because you, know, you just kind of prolong the exhaustion that you've had already. Um, so we very much, when we come home, we're just James and Kelly and not doctor, common pharmacist. Like we're not. So um, I think that helps as well. Like our son sees us just as his parents. We don't typically cross our professional and personal lives.
0: Have you guys ever burnt out at the same time?
2: Um, I I would say I no I would say <laughs> I don't we, think we haven't. So. Uh, I am generally probably less prone to burnout because uh, I'm I'm very good at some sort of detaching myself from work. Um, and yeah, you know, yeah. it, it's for the most part for pharmacy is a little bit different. So pharmacy it's not quite as life and death, right? Like we're not actively resuscitating a dying patient. Uh, so, you know, the, there are stresses for sure, right? Like you may deal with, you know, like, uh, patients that, uh, you know, may not understand sort of why their prescription is taking so long. And then they're like, oh, I have to, you know, go to my haircut appointment. And, you know, they're, they're really sort of, uh, like trying to get you to, to work like faster when there's like 10 other patients, you know, in front of them that they don't see because, of course, the people don't, people aren't lining up there. Um, you know, and then you're trying to make a decision. You're trying to like, you know, to figure out is this safe? Is this not safe? Uh, so, so you know, there can be stressful moments, but for every stressful uh, case, there's also another case where there's like a very grateful patient that you know that uh, you were able to really help, uh, or you fixed something, or so so it kind of balances uh, balances out. I think um, one of
1: the also the big differences is our personality. Um, I tend to be more high strong, more anxious, more like you know particular, perfectionistic, and he's pretty good at kind of. Letting things go, um, and I would say it also depends on kind of like the stages that we were at the various points. Um, so certainly for me, residency was probably the hardest time, and especially my final year studying for exams. So burnout was very, very common multiple points in that year. Um, and so, but I think our personalities contributing also makes a big difference. Um, so I mean, I, I, I think everyone in any career can burn out simply because you're pushing yourself too much, but I think how much of the mental game also that you are able to push aside or that you take on to yourself very much contributes to how much
0: And we're in the middle of a pandemic, which is like, I guess for anyone who studies epidemiology, some of it makes sense. But for the rest of the world, it doesn't really. So how do you then, because there's conflicting information coming out from the WHO, from government bodies. And if you read the scientific papers yourself, then the information does come out differently. For me, because I took such an interest in infectious diseases quite young, I can read some of the scientific journals and like, let my family know basically what the scientific community is saying. But how do you make personal and professional decisions if there's so much conflicting information coming
1: in and out? I think um, the decision-making, it doesn't differ personally or professionally when it comes to kind of the pandemic, because we I think we've both been trained from very, very early on that we are very evidence-based. So we never really take any particular article or journal or statement by any specific organization as that's it. Um, So we're both very much will look at the evidence and everything that's provided and then come up with our own conclusion based on that um, with regards to our choices for ourselves personally and professionally. Um, So you'll never really hear me or James saying like, this is the journal to live to read. This is the organization to listen to, because you kind of have to interpret it into your own and to determine what your own opinion is on it all, like all of it. Um, so I think it's been ingrained in us very, very early in our training, that that should be kind of how we approach it.
2: And I think one of the important things to recognize is um, the the WHO recommendations, for example. Uh, it's it's not that you know, it's 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 changing because uh, they're learning more, uh, and of course, because this is kind of a you know breaking situation, they're getting more studies, more research is coming out. So it's it may seem like they're flip flopping. Oh, you said you know ibuprofen was dangerous in COVID, and now you're saying it's not. It's it's actually fine. Uh, you know, but it's because oh, new studies have come out saying that it's actually okay. So you know, in, yes, the WHO may have said one thing yesterday and something different today. But you know, in general, the reason why they've changed is typically because new information has come out that's made them change their opinion. Um, you know, for the, the broader sort of uh, audience, uh, if you don't have medical training, generally speaking, your best bet is to take uh, information, of course, always with a grain of salt. Uh, but you know, take advice from people that have medical training. So you know, you'll see on the news, on CNN, you know, there'll be politicians who will be saying things, and there'll be. You know, people that aren't medically trained and they'll be saying things, uh, you know, I would just be careful about sort of where they're getting their sources from. Is that their personal opinion, you know, where they may say masks are are not good, right? And then uh, then you have a doctor coming out saying that, please wear your mask, right? Then, of course, you know, I would typically defer to the person who has some medical training. That's just a, a general rule of Of course, not perfect, but, uh, you know, usually it's, uh, I would you know, be critical about, okay, what are the person's credentials, and should I be listening?
0: And I guess one of the final questions we have, or one of the big final questions, is that, well, as someone who does more research than actual practicing medicine, I feel like there's a bit of a disconnect between the scientific community, or the research community and academia, with people who are actually practicing on the field. So this is more of an open-ended question that doesn't have to do with the pandemic. What are some scientific advancements that you want to see in the future?
1: I think for me, um, biggest thing is I, I see a lot of developmental behavioral issues in my office and kids that we don't have a lot of answers for. Um, and that we're like looking to hope to change their future, brighten their future, ensure that they have gained skills, can Develop and have a future. Um, There is limited therapies available. There's limited research behind what we do for these kind of less concrete things. Uh, For example, autism, for example, speech delays, for example, global developmental delay. Um, Like, there's just a whole host of things that are like developmentally related, behaviorally related that we throw therapy at, we have some evidence for, but then everyone's outcomes are very, very different because how they're implemented are so variable and the therapy provided by each therapist is variable. Um, And so for me, I would love to see more research behind the available therapies for various developmental delays and behavioral issues. Um, Because it's really hard when I see a patient and then I tell their parents, I think their child falls on the autism spectrum. These are the therapies that are available. And the question they always give me back is, will this cure them? Will this fix them? Will this make them normal? Um, And it's hard because my answer is always, well, first off, no, we can't cure it. But secondly, the outcomes are so variable depending on X, Y, Z and all of these situations. Um, I would love a lot more research behind that so that I could give more concrete answers to these parents rather than let's see how things go and let's do our best. So for me, I think that's the biggest thing I would like.
2: Think in the the pharmacy world, uh, sort of, you know, I would have to say, like, I'm looking forward to uh, develop developments in pharmacogenomics. Pharmacogenomics is just this; uh, it, it's coming. I feel like it's coming. But uh, you know, pharma- pharmacogenomics is basically where uh, you have uh, like researchers who will say, for example, take uh my you know genetic code and then they can see you know certain markers and understand how that affects my drug therapy so say for example you know if they realize oh people with this marker they don't respond well to this drug so then of course i'm not going to give you that drug right so there's ways so there's genetic differences between people so then you know the medication that you're giving them doesn't have to be the same um and it's kind of just uh seeing uh it's almost like a you're not seeing into the future, but it's uh, some gene markers can be predictive. Uh, that technology, that research is, is being developed. Uh, but I feel like, you know, if it becomes mainstream, it can really change sort of uh, the way we look at treatments in pharmacy. So that's that's uh, a big one that I'm looking forward to, to seeing more about.
0: Is that different from personalized medicine or is that?
2: Uh, yeah, that, that's generally the same idea. Um, yeah, so personalized medicine will it would be, I guess, more uh, like a layman's term for it, uh, but officially it would be like uh, pharmacogenomics.
0: Oh, because that's a really big word that I don't think. Yeah, I think even within the the scientific community, we call it like personalized medicine, but that that falls outside of pharmacogenetics as well because I think that includes like DNA therapies and stuff like that.
2: Uh, yeah, so what I would be talking about is not necessarily DNA therapies, but, uh, but just really recognizing like people with certain genetic markers, uh, they respond better to drug A versus drug B, or they experience side effects with drug A versus drug B, for example.
3: Oh, yeah. I guess well, relating to that, how do you want to see the way media portrays like pharmacy and doctors change, especially now with the pandemic? I think there's a relationship where the media is like, um, like, go, 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 we need to report everything. And then, but the doctor's like, wait a second. Like, we <laughs> don't know yet. And I think that relationship, even in politics, um, politics have become in the news, like a sportscast. How would you want that to change the way? Because I'm in planning, right? And, and planning like, requires everything, especially when it comes to health be we to talk mo- and work in multiple scales. How would you change that, that key factor of media, the way it portrays your community?
1: I think for me, well, there's, so there's so many layers to this. Um, first off, I think the biggest thing is physicians are going into this pandemic with not a lot of information. Um, so we're using whatever we have to attack this. And we're learning every day, moment to moment, more and more and more. And I think the thing that media and just general population needs to know is that we're learning as we go um, and to be patient with us because we're trying our best. We're trying to do everything we can. Um, And I think everyone's looking for that answer now and we don't have it and we're still learning and we're hoping so much to provide that answer, but we don't have it. Um, so, for me, patients would be a very important thing just from the general population media. Um, and I think the other big important thing I think that would be important for people to realize doctors are just people. Um, when this pandemic started, we all just got thrown into it. Um, there was a good few weeks where me and a lot of physicians were really unsure what we were going to be thrown into. There was discussion of being put into work lines of work that we are not trained for simply for numbers uh, because we are more trained than the general population but that's not what we were trained for. Uh, My brother who's an orthopedic surgeon was at one point told he may be put into the emergency room to intubate patients Uh, and so we were put into very uncertain situations or being told that we might have to Um, and then that brings about a lot of anxiety to me as a physician being thrown into a situation I may not be comfortable with. Um, And so at the end of the day, just realizing like doctors are people, we are human, we are trying our best and we are being put, we're being stretched I think to the limit um, with the pandemic Um, and I feel like that has been lost. Um, A lot of people are expecting kind of heroics for us to be superheroes of some sort um, to fix things and we're just people. Um, so I think at the end of the day just realizing we're just we're people that are trained to do this but we're being pushed to the limit so please be patient.
2: I, I think from the pharmacy like uh from the perspective of pharmacy earlier on at the beginning of the COVID pandemic um you know the biggest like the coverage around pharmacy was kind of it wasn't it wasn't great so so I'll give you the backstory basically um you know, one of the things that we had to do in BC was, uh, you know, a lot of pharmacies were were noticing that people were trying to stock up on their medications. So uh, because of that, of course, that that really depletes medication supply. Really. So, say for example, if if I'm taking medication A, and then now oh, there's a pandemic coming, I should take like if I normally take three months at a time, but now I want a whole year. I just want to you know take all of it just in case. Um, and if everybody is doing that, uh, that medication runs out very quickly. So the problem is, is there were policies that were implemented where, uh, you know, like patient, in order to make sure everybody can get their medication, and you're not all going to run out, you know, together, uh, you know, we uh, we had limits on medication, uh, which limited uh, pharmacies. Well, where, where pharmacies would dispense thirty day supply if they were concerned that there would be a shortage of the medication. So then. Uh, what was happening was the media coverage around that decision uh, was basically you know it it was kind of it revolved around patients that got 30 days and then they didn't understand why uh, why they could only get one month supply when normally they got say three months for example and then it became you know the coverage kind of you know morphed into Well, it's because pharmacies are trying to make three times the amount of money. If I dispense medication three times instead of one three-month supply, right? And then it portrayed pharmacies, you know, in in not a great light. Um, And it didn't really mention sort of the reason why. If if pharmacies, if if there were no restrictions put into place, uh, then everybody would just run out of medication. But nobody actually talked about that. Um, So instead, they kind of focused, you know, on the, I guess, what was newsworthy. Oh, they're charging you more money, right? It's... uh, and, and everybody we had so many phone calls about uh, you know why are pharmacies doing this and every time we had to explain and when we explained it patients kind of understood okay fine i think they, they got it but then why did the media you know the media maybe could have done a better job uh, at, at explaining that part uh, so so you know kind of what kelly was saying uh pharmacies pharmacists uh, pharmacy technicians and assistants everybody who's in the pharmacy uh they're all doing their best as well uh you know they're you know, like they're probably scared uh, to show up to work as well. They're in really close quarters, probably can't be social distance, uh, but they're there because their patients need them. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that in the pharmacy world, uh, oftentimes, you know, I they may not get as much of the spot as, you know, like actual like doctors and nurses who work in the hospital. Uh, so you don't really think about the guy at the drugstore who still shows up to work. Uh, so in, in that sense, I mean, like, uh, you know, that... That, uh, I think the, one the media hasn't covered that part.
1: One well. other thing to realize that we've actually discussed about as well is in the hospitals, as physicians, as nurses, we are given personal protective equipment. We are given things to protect ourselves, to make sure that we stay safe. Whereas they're not. <laughs> they're in a pharmacy, maybe given a mask and maybe put plexiglass up and maybe have some other things if offered, but it's not standardized in any way. Um, and so, when someone goes in the hospital, they're screened by nurses and they may be swabbed long before they even reach other people. So there's so many more barriers in place to protect us health professionals. But for them, someone just walks in you don't know who they've seen, you don't know what they have, you don't know what symptoms they have, and they're not given any protective equipment. So, if anything, they're, they're being portrayed negatively in the media. and. They're not even protected, and then they have to go home to their families. Um, so I would say, don't always believe everything in the media because there's a lot more to it. Um, and so this is a discussion we have had, and it's not a fair world by any means. Um, that you know they're being put at risk. I would say potentially even more, and not given anything to protect themselves.
2: And, and here's a funny and interesting fact. So you know how like uh, everybody is like, you know, like uh, banding together to gather personal protective equipment and masks and face shields and stuff and donating, donating it all to hospitals, right? So the problem with doing that is now everybody in the community can't get any of the supplies. So even Kelly for her clinic, you know, she was trying to figure out where like so so all the masks and everything have been sent to hospitals. But then like, as a doctor in the community, she's like, where am I going to get masks, yeah. right? Everything's sold out. People bought all these masks and sent them all to the hospitals, but she can't get any masks for her to see patients with, right? Or like face shields or anything like that. And then at the pharmacies, like, we get calls saying that we, there's no more masks, and we can't actually get any masks, right? Everybody took them all and sent them to the hospitals. But then like everybody else in the community, we can't get any So that's a fun fact. I think that's a good one.
1: It's getting better now that <laughs> It's not very fun. It's not fun! I guess that's what
3: happens when you like, um, put something as an emergency. As a charity work. When you put things as a charity work, as an emergency, you tend to overdo it, but then you overdo it wrongly. In the sense, like, you're doing something great. What's that called? When you do something great, but then the other thing happens?
0: Consequences?
3: Yeah. (laughs) No, but like unintentional consequences. So, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and yeah. I mean, everyone's heart is in the right place. And, and it's just a matter of like, things have settled now. So, it's a little bit better. It's a little bit easier. But I would say kind of like March, April, May was, was a little bit dicier at that point. Um, but there's certainly a lot kind of behind the scenes that people don't realize is going on. Um, and so, even in like my office a lot of the other physicians so i work in an office with some family doctors as well um and when masks were really really hard to acquire we were rationing so you had to wear masks potentially for days as long as it wasn't soiled um and then uh, because we just didn't have enough whereas typically without a pandemic we would switch between patients uh, obviously gloves we switch for sure but masks we would switch between patients because you, you know there's potentially out, outside is soil. Um, with just one like, coffee or sneezing or anything. And obviously, if it's overtly swelled, we change it. But now that we're wearing it for every single patient, we're stretching it. And so, in my office, some doctors are wearing them for like days on end until you're really like, oh my God, I need to change it simply because we don't have enough.
2: Yeah. And then you'll see on like social media where somebody, like a company, will say, we donated like, you know, a 100,000 masks to the hospital, but they can't even get a 100. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think so that
1: and then, back to um who are seeing potentially like the first presentation of COVID? Um, so, those are the aspects I think people don't realize because they just see the hospitalized parts, they see the emergency room, um, and they see kind of like the drive through COVID swaths and things like that. But there's a lot more going on right? like behind the scenes for the offices.
3: Yeah, I guess that's the lack like communication between different fields, I guess. I um, also like knowledge translation, something we learned in. Um, city planning is that sometimes knowledge translations between residents to governments are not really done well so that solutions that are implemented are like not um, community-based so I think that applies to what's happening here right now where there's something happening in the health community but then that knowledge doesn't get translated back to let's say the media right now
0: there's a lot of big reports as well online, especially like going through Facebook, WhatsApp, and Line, or what they call like what was it, WhatsApp universities, and so, like, where parents get very interesting stuff. I know my mom has definitely received two kilos of cloves from our relatives because apparently one of the relatives heard that smelling cloves can like prevent COVID from infecting you, which is.
3: There was one was like when if you buy onions and put it in the side of the rooms. Then yeah.
2: <laughs> and this goes back to my point of you know what are the credentials yeah. of the person that's giving you that advice?
3: <laughs> yes, to Asian parents, please stop reading your WhatsApp messages. We've certainly gotten some
1: that we find. at the end of the day, fun.
3: Oh, well, how do you deal with that though? Like you guys are like in the medical field.
1: I mean, it depends who sends it to us, if someone sends it to us, generally people know what we do, so, like, they send it to us more out of like, hey, look what I found, I don't think people really send us things that they like, I believe this, you should do it, it's more just to show us like, oh, this is out there.
2: We generally don't say anything.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not to be too polarizing, um, in our opinion, because obviously everyone has a right to their own opinion. Um. But will
2: we take it on and do it ourselves? Probably not. And one of the things that, uh, not necessarily COVID, but in general, like, the generally speaking, like the, you know, on a, a, like for any health issue or anything like that, the loudest voices are, uh, are definitely not the people with the most knowledge. In the sense that, like, uh, as a doctor, she has to be very careful about what kind of information, what she posts online, for example. Uh, you know as any healthcare professional you're liable for for what you say so generally speaking that means most people don't say anything Uh, if you have training if you have the knowledge you actually don't say anything so then the loudest voices actually are not the people that uh, have the most knowledge so um you know and and you may have noticed that right like it's uh you don't have like a ton of doctors like having viral facebook posts and things like that like you know maybe now because people are encouraging people to wear masks but that's you know that's like a a really important so but generally speaking for most medical things doctors and like pharmacists and nurses and things like that they don't really post anything
1: I think it's because what we do is provide care that's more customized to the patient so to generalize and state anything beyond information for one person that's customized to them would be wrong because you're not actually giving advice or making any statements to a person or a situation of specifics um So you never really want to be, or in my opinion, I wouldn't want to be that person that makes a generalized statement because it wouldn't apply to everybody. There's just no way. So essentially you'd be wrong.
0: Well, I guess that's a really good message that we can end on, which is don't believe everything that you hear in the media.
3: And wear a mask, please.
1: Wear a mask, please. Wear a mask. Don't touch your face. Wash your hands a lot. Very important. Yeah and keep socially
2: distanced please and COVID is not over yet it not. it's not time to start the parties it's not, not, not time, time the... to relax
1: it's not time to uh, go back to what was normal before great
0: so thank you guys so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to be here
3: yeah we really wanted the guests to speak to this so thank you so much for giving us the time thank you so so much um, please stay tuned in our next episode too all right. Bye. Yellow, hi. Thank you for listening to the Peak Boredom Podcast. This is Mars and Inga
1: signing off. And don't forget to tune in next week. Please, bye.